0: Good evening to each one, and may the blessing of the Lord rest on your this end of your day. We uh, want to greet you in the name of our precious Redeemer. Turn with me to John chapter 17. for a title this evening. The title would be Greater is He that is in you. But I want to read a few verses here in John 17 before I go and look at a, another parable and then we're going to move on to some other passages as well. John 17 beginning at verse 13 and Jesus here is actually he's praying to his heavenly father. But it's uh, what I call an explanatory prayer, because people around him that could hear this, obviously because it's recorded in the Gospel of John, they could hear him praying. Uh, they got a lot of good out of hearing what he had to say. John chapter 17, verse 13, "And now come I to thee, and these things I speak in the world that they might ha- I'm sorry, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves." And I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. There's the key verse, but I of these others for background. And if you have time later, sometime, read the whole, whole chapter. But they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also, which shall believe on me through their word. That they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. It's even giving... A reason for becoming a good, uh, becoming a Christian, and serving Christ. It's saying that as you follow Christ, then the world that has not received Christ yet sees in us an example that should be worth following. But back to verse fifteen, he says, "I pray not." That thou shouldest take them out of the world. And sometimes as Christians we wish that would happen. Not that we look forward to death necessarily. But that we could somehow isolate our little group. Our friends, our relatives, our family. Away from the world. And Jesus here is saying that's not what the way I expect you to live. You know, some people feel like to win the world you need to imitate them. Other people feel like you need to isolate yourself. And there's there is a place in the middle where you insulate yourself from the world. Okay. I have given them thy word. The world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world, I pray not that thou shouldst take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. What is the evil? What is pressing in on us at all times. And as we said, the title of the message this evening is Greater is he that is in you, and you know the rest of the verse, than he that is in the world. And we want to study a little bit about he that is in the world. We want to look at some of Satan's tactics this evening and um, see where we can learn from Scripture how to combat that. Turn now to Matthew chapter 13, and we're going to look at a parable there. If I was to ask you this evening what your definition is of a weed, we'd probably get some interesting answers. Got some farmers here. We like to have good crops, and uh, we find that our crops don't grow well if uh, our farm is overrun with weeds. Dictionary says a plant, uh, a weed is a plant that is not valued where it is growing and is usually a vigorous growth, especially one that tends to choke out more desirable plants. So that's a definition of weeds, of a weed tonight. Now look at Matthew chapter 13. Let's begin reading at verse 24. Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, didst not thou sow good seed in thy field? From whence then hath it tares? He saith unto them, An enemy hath done this. The servants said unto him, Wilt thou then that we get That we go and gather them up, but he said, Nay, lest while ye gather up the tares, ye root up also the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and in the time of harvest I will say to the reapers, Gather ye together first the tares, bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Going over to verse 37, we have verse 36. The disciples said, Declare unto us the parable of the tares of the field. He answered and said unto them, verse 37, He that soweth the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are the angels. As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be at the end of this world. The son of man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire, there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father, who hath ears to hear. Let him hear. Now, as we look at this parable, we, we, this has been titled the parable of the tares. And that's what the disciples called it. So the disciples understood at least that much that this is, we would call it the parable of the Weeds. Now, just previous in this chapter, we have a parable of of, uh, the sower. And just to compare those two a little bit, in the parable of the sower, we see a picture of Christ the Word being sown into man's hearts and his desire to work there. But... In this parable of the tares, we're really seeing the work of Satan and his desire to work in men's hearts. In the parable of the sower, the emphasis is on the soil. What kind of soil did the seed fall on? In this parable, the emphasis is on the seed. So don't try to interchange these parables at all and... and uh, Use the imagery from one and the other, it doesn't work. So, parable of the sower, the emphasis is on the soil, parable of the weeds is emphasis on the seed. What kind of seed are you tonight? Let's turn to Colossians 1 and uh, give us a little picture of good seed. Colossians 1, beginning at verse 3. We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Paul is talking to the Colossians here. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which he have to all the saints. Talks of the faith in Christ and a love for brethren. Two very important fruits that a uh, Christian Thinking of a way to call it in seed language, but of a Christian, what they bring forth the fruit that is in their life. They have faith in Christ Jesus, and they have a love towards all the saints. For the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof ye heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which is coming to you as it is in all the world, and bringeth forth fruit as it doth also in you since the day ye heard of it and knew the grace of God in truth. Those that have accepted the grace of God and allowed it to work in and, and, and be potent in their life. That word of God brings forth fruit on a daily basis uh, that, that other people can, can uh, recognize. Go to Acts 13. Acts 13, we'll begin reading at verse 6. Check out some bad seed here. And when they had gone through the island of Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew, whose name was Bar Jesus. Which was with the deputy of the country, Sergius Paulus, a prudent man, who called for Barnabas and Saul and desired to hear the word of God. But Elymas the sorcerer, for so is his name by interpretation, withstood them, seeking to turn away the deputy from the faith. Then Saul, who also is called Paul, filled with the Holy Ghost, set his eyes on him and said, "O full of all subtlety and all mischief, thou child of the devil, thou enemy of all righteousness, wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord?" And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon thee, and thou shalt be blind, not seeing the sun for a season. And immediately there fell on him a mist and a darkness, and he went about seeking some to lead him by the hand. Then the deputy, when he saw what was done, believed believed, being astonished at the doctrine of the Lord. I'm always impressed, impressed with Paul's railing uh, words against this sorcerer. I'm not sure that I'm quite that brave or feel that I mean Paul obviously had a direct word from the Holy Spirit in making a judgment call here I would not feel quite comfortable in doing that Uh, one of my fellow ministers and I have discussed this passage some and he likes to read things like the works of Menno Simons and all and he says Lendon you ought to read some of the letters that Menno Simons wrote he said it was just about like this here and uh, so but notice, this is bad scene. This this is a person here who is so bent on going the wrong way. And and his idea here was, was to keep Sergius Paulus from listening to Barnabas and Saul. And after Saul, uh, Paul, Saul, Paul, yeah, this is kind of where the name change happens. When he realizes that, he cuts loose on the on the person and God actually performed a miracle in causing the man to be blind for a season the deputy Sergius Paulus did uh, he saw what was done and he believed being astonished at the doctrine of the Lord so as we think about weeds this evening we want to look just think a little bit more about the what happens with weeds compare it to a natural occurrence or the natural occurrence. Weeds confuse the appearance of who is a believer and who is not, and that's one thing that I feel is is very proper in dress that is nonconform to the world. Now I don't think we need to always be studying the world's fashions and saying, "Okay, they're kind of getting the the circles kind of coming around, and it's about the way we look, so we're going to have to change." No, we need to find a a way of dress that we feel is modest, consistent, and, and a certain standard, and we need to stick with that. People will be impressed with consistency. But often, people, you know, and sometimes, well, we men, we have our everyday clothes and we're out working and all, and I'm just still amazed that somehow people will pick out and say, you're, you're a Christian, aren't you? It may not be because of the dress. I, I'm hoping it's also because of the way we act and the way our words uh, sound to people, things like that. But here in this uh, this parable of Matthew chapter 13, it was obvious that the weeds confused the appearance. Now, more than uh, the study into these Greek words and all would tell us that this tares that they were talking about, the word for tares here would be darnell. It's an actual plant that grows over in this part of the Middle East. When it comes up, there is no um, distinguishing it from wheat. You cannot tell the difference. You cannot. And that's why the Lord of the servants here said, no, 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 we're not going to go out and try to you know, there was probably some small thing they could find out and figure out which one was which. But you're basically down on your hands and knees. You're tromping on the good stuff. Things aren't going to work well here. Um, he said, "It's not going to work. We can't be pulling the one out and uh, and not expect to to hurt those around us or around that weed." Number two. Weeds tangle the roots of real plants, and they impede the growth. Uh-oh. Now, Jesus, in his prayer, said, I pray not that thou would take you, them out of the world, but I want them to be protected from the evil that's there. But that this parable here should be something that is a warning to us that we can be Tangled up in things that look so good, there's hardly any discerning between the good and the bad, at least at a certain point. And see, that's one thing that comes through in that parable is that the, the Lord said, let's see, how did he say that? Let both grow together until the harvest, and in the time of harvest, that's when the difference is going to be shown. Now this plant called Darnell, it's called bearded Darnell, can only be distinguished from wheat after the ear or head is formed. As long as it's still a grass, you cannot tell it. It's only after the ear or head. The the head is almost non-existent, and it has tiny black seeds in it. It's it's very different from wheat at that point. In fact, if you would thresh it out and have it laying where you could see all the seeds, it would be very obvious back then, their primitive threshing situation and all, they threshed it out and the women and children spent time sorting through and picking out the black seeds. Why did they do that? Uh, It says the seed is like wheat, but small and black But when you mix it with wheat flour, if you grind it up with the wheat, it will cause dizziness, intoxication, and paralysis. Oh, dear. So it's toxic. It's a a type of poison. Uh, This is the only type of wheatgrass that they know of that, that does this actual thing. But that's the way it comes out. And that's why... The servants were so insistent, we've got to get something separated out here. But the Lord said, let's wait until the end of time, and we're going to separate things there. So, these kind of weeds tangle the roots of real plants and impede growth. So, as Christians, we need to be be sure that even as we live in this present world, that we are not becoming entangled that the roots are roots and the roots of bad seed or people that we should not be associating with that they are not entangling uh, our lives with theirs that's a good reason to be very very careful in marriage and seeking a marriage partner that we know the person well, that we know where they stand spiritually and where, uh, what their hopes and dreams and goals are. Weeds tangle the roots of real plants and impede growth. Weeds rob the soil of nutrients. Now, Jesus is, was saying in his prayer that I can, I can put my believers out in the world And I can nurture them and I can take care of them and I want them protected from the evil. They can survive there. But all of us know that if we separate ourselves from God and try to go out and live on our own and feed ourselves somehow spiritually from our own storehouse that it doesn't work that way. We need nutrients from God. If we go out and mix with the world and rub shoulders with the world on a regular basis without the help of a solid Bible based church, without the help of God, uh, through Bible reading and prayer. We just we, we need God in our lives if we're going to have the nutrients we need in our Christian life. Number four Weeds produce no fruit but plenty of seeds. Weeds produce no fruit, but plenty of seeds. I think it was last year, I had a neighbor that bought a farm. that came to me and he said, Lennon, I'd like you to, to work up this field. And I, I took my tractor and disc and went out and worked it up. And there was horseweeds and cockleburs and stuff as tall as a tractor. And I don't have one of these fancy ones that has a cabin and all. And around my feet on the platform, there was weed seed laying thick. I wanted to leave it all in his field, too. (laughs) I didn't want that going back to mine. I mean, it just, the the amount of weed seed that came off of those plants, just from my tractor front axle hitting it all the time, and it spraying back over me, I'd feel weed seed hitting my face and stuff. Terrific amount of seed there. Um, but weeds don't produce fruit. And it works that way in the spiritual realm also. People that they can look like they're doing the right thing, they can look like they are following God, or they can say they're doing that. And on the outside appearance, they may appear to be all right. But when you take a closer inspection of their life, and it usually takes time to do that, you find that there are plenty of seeds, seeds of doubt, mistrust, suspicion, gossip, all sorts of things that, you know, seeds that weedy people end up uh, producing. But there's no fruit. There's no fruit that the Bible speaks of that is produced. Number five, yeah, weeds dry up quickly, but are always present in the soil and return perennially, perennially. They, um, you know, you can think that a weed problem is past in your garden. And I will admit that if you stick at the weed situation on a farm or a garden, or uh, it does make a difference over time. And uh, you, you can cut it down. But it, all it takes is ignoring it for one year and you've got a bumper crop again so weeds always come back and for us to ever come up with the idea that somehow we are in such an isolated place that we can get comfortable with the people around us and that is not that we look down on people we must our our goal in life is to help people to Christ and sometimes we don't know We don't know where they stand uh, spiritually. But let's not let them entangle us or drag us down or cause us to become weeds also. In the natural world, good seed is good seed. Weeds are weeds. But in the spiritual world, Satan is trying to change the good seed to bad seed. There's a difference there. But there is good news, and that is that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Do you really believe that tonight? Do you really think, with all your heart, that Jesus Christ living within you is a greater source of power than all the things of the world and Satan and, that he has to offer? Yeah, we say that. We'd be quick to say that. But do we really live like that? Is it something that comes across easily to other people that we believe that we have the greatest power on earth residing within our hearts? What are some ways that Satan works against us? Number one is that he plants seeds of doubt and disbelief. And we find that illustrated for us in the story of Adam and Eve. Um... I, I'm always amazed when I read that passage and and Satan in the form of the serpent there comes and he says, Yea, hath God said, Did God really mean what he meant or what he said there? Did, did is that really what he meant? I think he's pulling your leg. I, I I don't think that's right. And he planted seeds of doubt and unbelief in their heart. Also the children of Israel in the wilderness. It says they entered not into the promised land because of unbelief. And Satan no doubt was at work in their hearts as he tried over and over again and was successful in causing those people to doubt the mercy and grace and power of God. Again I'm amazed at that but would I have done any better? Would I have done any different? Obviously there were people that did. There were people that remained true and faithful. Think of Caleb and Joshua and I'm not wouldn't be surprised there was more than that but they suffered along with with the rest main part of the group there okay number two things that Satan ways that Satan works against us is that he causes us to fear and this is probably a big thing that I this is one that I want to dwell on a little bit here how does fear work in your heart and life I remember times when I was scared to get up front, and it still comes from time to time. There's times we have a bench back here that preachers sit on, and sometimes I'm sitting there, waiting for my turn to stand up and speak, and I'm just thinking, how in the world am I going to make the legs get move and get up there and do what needs to be done? It's fear, and part of fear is that we. We don't know what's out there ahead of us. We don't know how this audience is going to respond. Or we don't know what's around the next bend. So we fear. That's why when we're out in the dark, we tend to fear there a lot more than in the daylight. I tend to, to, to think about that as we drive here at night and I see all these deer bodies beside the road. I fear a little bit. Because of the unknown. What's going to jump out in front of me? Another reason that we fear is because we're worried about what other people think. Now, to a point, we need to consider what other people think. But to fear, to allow fear to consume us, because of what others think or what we think they think. That's no good. That's a miserable way to live your life. Maybe we fear because we doubt our abilities. And it's okay to understand that you're not the best. I I hope we do that anyhow. A humble spirit should be such that says, I'm sure there's other people that can do it better than I can. But that shouldn't be a fear that controls us to the point that we are immobilized. If that's the case, then we'll never, we'll never take our place in a church service and do something. Because there's always someone else that can probably do it a little better. And hopefully with practice, you, you do become better at it. We, we fear because we know about failure. Failure is a word that we understand really well because all of us at some time or another, we've failed. And because of how other people responded to our failure or maybe the way we responded to it, maybe the way a teacher did, our parents, we fear because of failure. And, and I would like to challenge you this evening that don't let failure... Grip you to the point that you're too afraid to try again. One man wrote, he said, I'm not impressed with anyone's life unless they have integrity. But he said, I'm not happy with their life until they are dangerous. Now go back up and read the first phrase again. He says, I'm not impressed with anyone's life unless they have integrity or unless they're willing to think things through and consider where they're going and what they're doing. But he said, I'm not happy with their life until they are dangerous. As much as I have the ability to do so, I'll not let those around me get away with just being nice people. Are you willing to just live in a safe little shell somewhere? You found your little corner and it's safe and we're, we're um, uh, familiar with it and don't ask me to get out of that comfort zone. You don't know where you'll, be, you'll go when you get out of your comfort zone. You may go on a CLE workshop tour or you know, there's all sorts of things that can happen to you. But he said, I'll not let those around me get away with just being nice people. I guess I was impressed with that. That, you know, not only do I want to keep failure, the fear of failure, from causing me to be immobile, but I also want to be a type of person that inspires other people to go forth and and, and try things that are new, maybe try things they've failed at before. I think it was Thomas Edison that he said, I, you know, I don't have. I think he worked on a um, worked in a building that had a, uh, the window to one of his rooms. There was on a second floor, and at one time he had failed projects. He would throw them out the window when a project, an uh, invention of his, didn't work. And the one time the pile reached a second-story window. But we think of him as a great inventor, and that he really found out how to do a lot of things and we're thankful for the lights and whatever we have you know he said i don't think of them as failures it's just i found another way not to make a light bulb was his idea so it's how we look at them so let's think of, of an opposite or opposing term to fear and that's faith someone's definition of faith is paranoia in reverse Now, why would they use that? A truly paranoid person organizes his or her life around a common perspective of fear. This is kind of deep stuff here, but I'll try to explain a little more. Anything that happens feeds that fear. See, a paranoid person or a person that's very afraid of what's around the next corner, he organizes his or her life around... That fear, that fear controls him. He lives by that fear. Anything that happens in his life, he looks at it through those glasses, those fear glasses, and it, again, it controls him. Faith works in reverse. A faithful person, or a a person with faith, organizes his or her life around a common perspective of trust not fear. Now, sometimes our trust is betrayed. I admit that. But Satan wants us to live a paranoid, fearful life, afraid of what's around the next corner. Christ wants us to live a life based on faith and trust in him and that he will provide regardless of what's around the next corner. Despite the apparent chaos of the present moment, God does reign. He's in control. Regardless of how I may feel, I truly matter to a God of love. So you see the difference between the person that is controlled by fear and the person that is controlled by faith. Incidentally, feeding your faith helps starve your fears. Number three. Satan, and another way that Satan tries to work in our life is he tries to ignite our pride. We've talked two nights now on pride issues. He's very good at stoking the fires under our pride furnace and getting them warmed up. Because here's what happens when you have this faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Things, uh, life is not necessarily going to go be rosy for you, but you will feel successful. You will feel like uh, things are going along. Okay, now, you may have setbacks, there may be all sorts of things happening in your life, but you will be confident in, in the knowledge of God and that God is in control. And if things go very well during that position in your life, Satan works to ignite your pride. And after a while you say, yes, my success is dependent upon Lyndon Hartman, it is not dependent upon Um, God anymore so I succeed because I have I'm trusting in God and I don't give him the honor and glory that he deserves and then I begin to be lifted up in pride Satan wants us to believe that we did it in our own strength and we tend to allow other people to glorify us okay okay And when we do succeed in our own strength, and that happens from time to time, Satan sees to it that that can happen, then we're setting ourselves up for a fall. What happens when we fall? We go back into the shell of paranoia and fear. See the cycle? And then you've got to try to break back out of that and get back on the faith level and where you're trusting God again And once you get there, you're in danger of of Satan turning up the heat under your pride. Then you become proud. Then you fall again. Then you're fearful. Then you, you know. And after a while, you just huddle back there in the fear, and you're depressed. You're, uh... yeah. If you look at that in steps, first we overcome fear by faith, and then by faith we succeed. Our success goes to our head, we become proud, we stumble and fall, then we become depressed and fearful again, and it starts over again. God doesn't want us to live in that cycle. God wants us to live in a steady, even keel of faith in him. Not fear and and pride cycle that is uh, brought on by Satan's power and, and ways. Number four, another thing that Satan, the way that Satan works in our lives is that he brings trouble into our lives. And you can see that in the illustration of Job in the Bible. Job really didn't do anything wrong. And we can see behind the scenes there. I'm I'm just so glad for the book of Job because it gave... Or it gives me a picture into what's happening in the powers behind the scenes. And I am so thankful that God sets boundaries for Satan and says, Here's what you can do. We should get rid of him altogether, but he says, Here's what you can do, and you can't go any farther than this. Here's the boundary. You have to stop here. But we also see in that picture that he does allow Satan to test our loyalty to God. God wants to see if we're really as faithful as we claim we are or as we pretend to be when things are going good and going well. He was confident in his servant Job and that confidence was not misplaced. But oh my, the mighty trials that Job went through as he experienced that refining of God where God allowed Satan to do his worst. Well, Satan would have killed him if he could have, I'm sure. Number five, the last one, is that he is a deceiver. He deceives. In Mark chapter 13, verse 22, it says, For false Christ and false prophets shall rise and shall show signs and wonders to seduce if it were possible Even the elect. Even the best, the finest Christian, the one that has served God for 40, 50, 60 years. Satan is still out there trying to turn them away from God. And I've experienced that in my own life. I'm finally admitting that I'm maybe a little older now. And I start realizing that, you know, Satan may change his tactics with our age, but he's still just as present, just as busy in our lives trying to turn us away from the proper path. Another illustration of that in Scriptures is how Satan twisted Scripture when he was tempting Christ. He tried to use scripture against Christ or to to get him to fall, to sin. And Christ rebuked him with scripture also. Let's turn to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, we'll begin reading at verse 1. Beloved, believe not every spirit, But try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world. Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you. Than he that is in the world. And that's a very, very comforting thought tonight. As we consider these many ways that Satan tries to work against us. And tries to bring us down. Tries to turn us away from God. And to know that as we have peace and joy in the Christian life. And uh, that Christ and his Holy Spirit are residing within us. That greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Verse 5, they are of the world, therefore speak they of the world, and the world heareth them. We are of God. He that knoweth God heareth us. He that is not of God heareth not us. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. And that's going back to that parable of the tares. And how do we know the difference? And who can we trust? And Well, we, first of all, we trust the word of God. And we compare what people say to that. So it takes an intimate knowledge of God's word. And God will not leave us clueless. I'm so thankful for that. If you are seeking for truth this evening and you're asking God to show you the right way, God, God will not leave you clueless. Now maybe it's harder for you to understand the Bible than it seems like it is for other people. But... God will send someone or something to show you the way. And he says, hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. That is so important in our world today. That we have a good grip on what is the spirit of truth and what is the spirit of error. Because there's many things. and just I think in my short lifetime I, I can see it getting worse and worse. As there is more a spirit of error. In the in the world around us, and in churches that I once trusted, of people following strange ways, changing for the sake of change. Let's do it different. Let's you know. Let's be individuals. Let's you know. Turn away from the old ways, old paths. Year of God, little children, I've overcome them because greater is He that's in you than he that is in the world. And tonight I just challenge you with that thought. Is that, is God, does Christ have residence in your life? Is he there? Is he working there for your good? Are you allowing him to have full control in your life? Or are you a changed person inside? If you are, you have the greatest power on earth inside of you. We like power. We like to have Feel like we're in control. And that's not, it's really not that way. When you have Christ within you, you've got to have to turn the control over to him. But it's good to know that we have power within us to overcome whatever the tempter may bring.